And this is, of course, the pattern that we see throughout the rest of Scripture. So here we go. Just to recap everything that we've been talking about in this class, to recap covenant theology. What you have is God creating, God cutting covenant. That covenant containing blessings and curses for mankind. Then mankind breaks the covenant. And the the punishment for the breaking of covenant is the removal of God's presence. So that's important. What is judgment? It is the removal of God's presence. So, really, what was the judgment of the flood? Well, there was the physical death and the physical destruction and things like that. But the, the idea in the passage is that now, direct access to God, his holy mountain, is erased. So the judgment that mankind suffered is they no longer have access to God. Now, God is, of course, merciful. This is the other aspect of this pattern. God removes his presence, and yet he shows mercy in his judgment. So Adam and Eve deserved death, immediate, instant death. But God, what? He kills an animal to cover their sins and provides clothes for them to cover their sin, to cover their nakedness. So in his judgment, he shows mercy. And he does this to expand the covenant and to expand his kingdom. So every covenant that God makes with his children going forward essentially follows these patterns. And it begins with God blessing them. And also, these covenants are always initiated by God. There's no covenant in Scripture in which Israel determines to make a covenant with God. It's always from God to Israel, or from God to Abraham, or from God to Noah. Okay. Any questions so far? We're moving along. Very good. The, uh, another element of the Noahic covenant is the institution of the authority of executing capital punishment. So this is one of those interesting things that clearly, because of the wickedness of men, they were obviously killing one another. So it's, I mean, obviously, Cain killed Abel. So murder wasn't anything new. And you can imagine that before the flood, the wicked cities, the wicked villages of men, were certainly executing people they didn't like. That was certainly part of what was happening. But here we have Noah who is the new Adam, and he is explicitly commanded that if anyone spills the blood of someone else, their blood is to be spilt by man. So there you have the institution of capital punishment. And this, as uh, our several theologians and, and commentators have noted, is, uh, remember we've talked about the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king? Here, what we find is that sort of Um, typological institution or initiation of the office of king. So here, Noah is being presented as the new king of all creation. He is the the new Adam. So he's the new king of all creation, and kings are, are the office of executing authority and rule, generally. That is what we think of them as doing, executing executing authority and rule on earth, executing God's plan, executing God's judgments. So when God explicitly gives him the authority to carry out capital punishment, 
you have now the office of king entering into creation. <clears throat> the Noahic promises are, of course, that God promises to never again destroy the earth. So not only does he give him the command to execute capital punishment, he's reiterated the cultural mandate to go into the earth and subdue it, but now he offers a promise of mercy, and that is God will never again destroy the earth because of man's wickedness in this same way. So in Genesis 9, verses 11 through 16, and I want you to listen carefully uh, here for the purpose of the sign of the covenant. And I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So what is the purpose of the rainbow? is a reminder to God, primarily. Now, we obviously see it, and we are reminded of the covenant. We are reminded of God's mercy and grace. But it explicitly says here that the rainbow is a sign for God to remember His mercy, which is immensely ironic, given our current culture, that likes to use the rainbow as its you know, emblem. Right? Uh, certain, certain portions of our depraved culture likes to use that imagery as their sign, as their emblem. And to me, it's a, a great sense of irony that those who are celebrating their wickedness are using a sign, and perhaps, not perhaps, but this is by design. They do this on purpose. But they're using a sign, they've chosen a sign that explicitly means God is having mercy on those who deserve judgment. The sign means God is not judging those who deserve to be judged. God is showing mercy. The sign of the rainbow also gives us um, a glimpse into God's new plan for creation. So this is why I mentioned that the world after the flood is very different than how it was before. This is what theologians call God's common grace. So there is special grace, that is the grace we receive from Christ unto salvation, unto the atonement of our sins. But God's common grace is that which applies to all mankind from the flood till now. And those mercies, those common graces, are what we live under even before we know Christ, before we come to Christ. Part of the common graces are the regularity of creation. So this is what has caused 
science essentially to be a viable uh, endeavor. Now I can argue against that all day long, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but what we have now is we have a creation that is very stable. God says he won't destroy the earth again by a flood and that he will uphold it through seed time and harvest and that the regularity of scripture or regularity of creation rather will continue. That is part of the Noahic promises that God has now established creation so that it has order so that the sun shines on the just and the unjust and the seasons and the crops and the, and the rain falls on the just and the unjust and all these notions that is called common grace. This is why the Bible says that no man is without excuse. This idea that, um, so I'll say it this way. I've heard it said, and, and I'm sure all of you have heard uh, people who deny the existence of God say things like, well, how can God judge me? I don't really have evidence or, you know, I, I, I've never experienced God or I've never seen God or known him or anything like that. How can I be held accountable for what I can't know, what I don't know? Well, we should say to them, you are in fact, you're living in that fishbowl. You're living in the fishbowl. You're surrounded by water. You are wet. That is, the wetness is God's common grace. God's spirit, God's Holy Spirit, having common grace on creation, is in the world. Now, you don't know any better because you've always experienced it. But this notion that somehow God's presence, God has never revealed himself to me. So therefore, how can I be held accountable in answering to him? God is saying, no, no, you've always known my presence in common grace. There has never been a moment in which God's common grace has been absent from the world. The, the way I've thought about this is that even in the midst of sin, my heart continues to beat. We might find ourselves actively sinning, and yet we might remember, my heart is still beating. God is having grace on me even in the midst of my sin. And that extends to those who are apart from Christ. Their wickedness, it's not like, you know, this is one of those be kind of handy if it worked that way, but uh, there wouldn't be anybody left. Um, if any instance of sin, your heart stopped. Well, obviously there'd be no one left on earth. So God is having mercy. He is showing mercy and grace to creation. And it is consistent. It is regular. It follows his character. So that's what's known as God's common grace. And there are several elements to that that I haven't unpacked. So... What happens after the flood and after Noah is given this, these graces? And we'll finish with this. Of course, man begins to go his own way. Soon after Noah and his descendants begin to fill the earth, they begin to go their own way, just as they did from Cain. So again, we begin to see that division of mankind following one of two paths. Either they remain faithful and obey God, or they are rejecting God and they're following their own way. Now this is a very interesting element in history. There are themes and patterns throughout history that seem to mirror one another. So the Tower of Babel, 
the reason they were divided is because they were trying to build essentially a temple or a tabernacle for themselves to reach into heaven so that they could become God or like God's. And God says there's nothing they can't accomplish, so I'm going to divide them and disperse them. So the, the, another connection there is that they were not adhering to the cultural mandate. They were not going out into the earth and filling it. They were centralizing and they were glorifying themselves. So there we have a rejection again of God's command. So they were centralizing, glorifying themselves, and building for their own purposes and their own glory. Interestingly, after the Tower of Babel, where God confuses their language and disperses them, what do we have? We have the idolatry that they were committing fill the earth. So now what do we have in archaeology? What do we see from civilization to civilization to civilization? Whether it's Egypt to South America, what do you see? We see towers, excuse me, towers, that was a hard T, towers or pyramids or ziggurats that are built. And normally those are built for some type of, or were, built for some type of religious ceremony, some type of religious practice in which there was a priestly order who they alone had access to God. And a lot of the times, these pyramids, these uh, towers, had human sacrifices or blood sacrifices. So we can see what Genesis is providing uh, is that there's the proper worship of God. There's the proper obedience to God. And it follows a certain pattern. And throughout creation, throughout history, what we see is because all mankind has descended from that common history... All the other idolatrous nations of the world, all the other idolatrous civilizations of history follow that same pattern, but it is corrupted. It is idolatrous. They're no longer worshiping the true God. They are worshiping themselves, or they're worshiping the sun, or they're worshiping some other list of deities. So not only is idol does idolatry and these sort of buildings and towers and, and uh, pagan worship all kind of fit the same mold. And it's a corruption of the Adamic and Noahic sacrificial system. But interestingly, every ancient civilization that we have records from also contains a flood narrative. I don't know if you knew that, but every ancient civilization, whether it's the um, Babylonian or the Mesopotamian or any other uh, ancient civilization that we have documented records from that we can understand they all have an ancient flood narrative and that illustrates the point that there is a common history there's a common history of all mankind that understands the flood they understand that they were judged the world was destroyed and was recreated so history this is why history archaeology all these things point to the accuracy of the Genesis account. And what do we have being set forward now is God has, after the, after the flood, he blesses Noah to fill the earth. They begin to do that. Man again divides between the two categories. Those who are doing wickedness 
uh, and, and rejecting God are dispersed. So now you have the world being filled with people who are rejecting God. Now God, to build his kingdom on earth, what does he do? He chooses Abraham to build his holy nation. To bring, or rather to bring his presence back to creation through Abraham. So that's what we'll talk about next week, is how going forward from this, the covenant of Abraham, or the Abrahamic covenant, is the initiation of God restoring mankind back to himself. Any questions? No? Very good. That'll do it.